Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do other people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. In other texts, it says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. We skip down to verse 34. He called the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who will lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the angels. And he said to them, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power, and this is the word of the Lord. Not like you mean it. Thanks be to God. Let me hear you again. Be Much better. You remember, I've known most of you for years and years and years, and you prayed for me all throughout several different wars I got to be a part of. One was in the Congo. And during the war in the Congo, we were part of a rebel movement called the Rally for a Democratic Congo. General Adolf Unasumba commanded 40,000 troops. He controlled 40% of the Congo in a war that lasted seven years, cost five million lives, involved nine African nations, and succeeded in replacing one dictator with another. That's all it did. During the war, the general and I would communicate by email. So it wasn't uncommon to get an email from this man who said, don't come to the Congo right now, times are bad. Well, that made sense, but there was one problem. The general and I had a code. We had a very simple one-word code, and if that one word wasn't in the subject line of the email, then the email was fake. This was somebody trying to stop us from doing our job. So I decided I'd have some fun with him. I wrote right back and I said, oh, thank you for that good word, but are you going to be at the conference in Paris? And the general wrote right back and said, well, of course I am. Send me details. I had my two travel agents, Bonnie Kaczynski and Rita Harden, put together an entire conference at that Hilton Hotel that sits right next to the Charles de Gaulle Airport. Some of you have probably been there. I sent the general all the details with a note that said, the day before the conference, I will send a fax to the hotel and give you the details. And he wrote back and said, that's perfect. Well, you know, at the last minute, we canceled everything. But I sent a fax to the hotel, and it said, General Unasumba, we have been discovered. I'll meet you at the safe house in Berlin. And I signed it, Ben. <laughs> now, I, probably nothing happened. But in my mind, I just love to think that maybe the dictator had filled the hotel with thugs who thought, we're going to capture the whole rebel movement, and all they get is a fax, and they're going, where's Berlin? Where's the safe house? Who has this guy been? All because one word was missing. So it got me thinking about the power of one word. 
If I say liberty, freedom, justice, joy. Okay, if I say children, eh. If I say grandchildren, <laughs> if I say parents, but if I say grandparents, what if I say yes, no? Maybe. How about bacon? Jesus. You know, if, if you take all the words used in our language, the number one word used in English in America is the. Number 10 is I. Number 100 is we. While we're doing numbers, you know, there are 360 million of us in America. 240 million of us are Christians who attend over 400,000 churches. Think about that. And yet the word Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Lord, Savior, none of those words make the list of the top 100 words used in our language. And yet go back to what Paul just said, that at the name of Jesus, what will happen? Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. And that name doesn't make the top 100. When we preach, we go back and we read scripture in different languages. In the New Testament, I do it in Latin, Greek, and English. And in English, it says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. But if you go back and read it in Latin and Greek, it doesn't say that. In English, it says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In Latin and Greek, though, it says, in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And I can see your faces. You're sitting there going, oh, my gosh. I got up and came to this thing, and Ben is going to preach on in and at. Somebody tell Ben, I'm in my chair. I'm at my nap. Wake me up when this thing's over. Stay with me for just a minute. I mean, it's a big difference in in and at. I mean, think about this. You could be at a football game or you can be in a football game. You can be at the hospital or you can be in the hospital. You can be at a wreck or you can be in a wreck. One is a spectator and the other is a participant. I'm from, I'm from Memphis. Is anybody from Memphis that will admit it? I mean, you can tell me. Tell me after church, okay? When I had hair... I was a law enforcement chaplain back during the Vietnam War, and this was such an unusual occurrence that it made television. Across the river from Memphis is Turl Twist, Arkansas, and a woman living in Turl Twist had four thugs kick in her front door and come pouring into her house. This made the news. They sent a television reporter over there, and they said, tell us what happened. And this old lady said, I was sitting there minding my own business when these boys kicked in the front door, and in they came. And the reporter goes, what did you do? And this elderly woman said, I stood up, I pointed a bony finger at those boys, and I hollered, in the name of Jesus be gone. And by now, the reporter is giggling, and she goes, what happened? And that old lady bowed up and she said, they ran like scalded dogs. <laughs> There's power in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Well, that's why the eighth chapter of Mark is so important. By the eighth chapter of Mark, Jesus is with his disciples. You know, that's Thomas and James and John and Peter and Matthew and Judas and Thomas and you. And by the eighth chapter of Mark, you... 
have seen people fed physically. You've seen them fed physically and spiritually. You've seen lives changed. And now Jesus wants to know who do they think he is. So in kind of a roundabout way, he starts by saying, well, who do others say that I am? The text, different texts say you're Jeremiah, you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, you're one of the prophets. But it all comes down to this. Everything comes down to this. Jesus looked at those first disciples just like he looks at you, and he asked, yes, but, but who do you say that I am? And this is where we run into the limitations of Scripture. Scripture doesn't tell us about silence. It doesn't tell us what was going on in the hearts of those first disciples any more than we know what goes on in your heart when you hear Jesus ask you, who do you say that I am? You know, by now was Judas thinking, ah, you know, you sure do cause a lot of trouble. How about Thomas the doubter? Was Thomas going, I, 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 what did Matthew do for a living? Matthew was a tax collector. What's he thinking about all the time? Money. Money. Now, can't you see Matthew? Matthew sitting there going, you know, <laughs> I don't know who you are, but you keep doing these miracles. We're going to make a fortune. I'm going to buy a house on the water in Galilee. You just keep doing it. That didn't say that. All it says is Peter answered. Some other versions say Peter replied. And it's a very casual response. The greatest question in history, who do you say that I am? And Mark says, Peter just replied. I'm going to ask Mark why he chose that word. But Mark replies, oh, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Peter might as well have said, why, yes, I'd love another piece of buttered toast. That's not Peter. Peter's the guy that walked on water. Peter cuts the man's ear off with his sword. Peter is the rock. I like thinking Peter proclaims, you're the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And then Jesus answers them, okay. Now, if you want to move from being a spectator to a participant, take up your cross and follow me. And oh, we preachers have blamed everything on that cross. It's your sin. No, it's not. This may be a big surprise. But Jesus already knows you're greedy. Jesus knows you're depressed. Jesus knows you're addicted, you're unfaithful, you're in debt up to here trying to keep up some image. Jesus already knows that. The wonder of it all is that he knows that and yet he still wants to use us to participate in the kingdom. Now the real burden, the real cross that we have to carry on oh, it's very, very real. I call it the burden of hope. The real cross that we have to carry is realizing that as a believer in Jesus Christ, no matter the situation, no matter, no matter the situation you find yourself in, you, because of Jesus, are part of the answer. You are not part of the problem, and you got to carry that with you wherever you go. You heard, you heard about the fighting in Luebo? 250 men, women, children slaughtered. Horrible, horrible things happened to the women and children. The army was sent in to stop it, and they just joined in. You heard about all that? No. <laughs> it didn't make the news over here. It's just Africa. Who cares? 
Didn't even make the news. It's where Presbyterians had their very first mission outpost. And it didn't make the news. And yet in the middle of all of this horror, we learn something profoundly, profoundly moving. You've seen women in Africa with the clothing that they wear. You, oh, you see them in the United States now. It's, it's 17 yards of cloth. They wrap it around themselves. It's bright and colorful. It'll have words or animals or faces. Well, we learned in the middle of this horror that women who were wearing dresses that had the name of Jesus on it were spared. Why? Two reasons. The supernatural power of God and his angels to protect us. Don't ever forget that. And the others that even the savages realize. Even the savages realize that without the people of Jesus, there are no hospitals, there are no schools, there's no food, there's no clean water. And so those women were spared. So you know what we did. We bought all the cloth we could find that had Yesu Udamukalingi, Jesus is Lord, written on it. And we sent that cloth to the Kasai province of the Congo. And we literally wrapped every woman we could find in the name of Jesus. Say amen one more time. Come on. Oh, how did that happen? It happened because somebody understood the next verse. What goods are going to do you to gain the world and lose your soul? And no, that's not anti-materialistic at all. Don't think that's where I'm going. It, no. We just had Christmas. How can you say it's anti-materialistic? There's nothing wrong with a new bobble and a bangle. There's nothing wrong with a new truck, a new car, a new boat, that next house in the mountains, that seventh jet. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. It's a legacy. It's a feeling of success. It's something you worked for. It's something you, I don't, I don't know if you can say you deserve but we all know how it feels to get something shiny, bright, and new. It's just a wonderful feeling. It's a new thing. Until you realize, I got to pay taxes on this thing? I got to buy insurance for this thing? I have to feed this thing? And all of a sudden, this brand new thing just becomes another thing. Now, what Jesus is saying is that if you want to feel a sense of peace, Get rid of anxiety in your life, a sense of contentment, a sense of fulfillment, then do something completely selfless for somebody else. I want you to take 36 seconds and watch what we're going to do. Can you lower the lights and play this, roll that beautiful bean footage? I just want you to watch this and I'm going to tell you what it is. Indonesia. That was the island of Bali. The volcano is Mount Agung. The last time I saw you, I asked you to please. That volcano was about to erupt. Let's all pray that God puts the thing back to sleep. For the next 10 months, that volcano went back to sleep. It gave us time to prepare 8,000 people in disaster preparedness as part of our ministry.
when the volcano blew, we took 22,000 people off of that volcano and put them in the camps we had built, and they're all safe and fine. Two weeks later, they woke up to the whole place doing this. An earthquake had hit 60 miles away on our next island called Lumbach. You saw that people in the parking lot were patients in the hospital. They dragged them out into the parking lot in case the hospital fell. 430 people died like that. These are our neighbors. They're primarily all Muslim, but they're our neighbors. And what could we do about that? Just sit and say, oh, we don't do relief work? No. We packed up our American staff, our Indonesian staff. We sent them to the island of Lombok where people who are trying to recover from an earthquake have to have four things. They've got to have water. They've got to have food. They've got to have shelter. And they've got to have somebody willing to dig in the rubble and pull out their dead children and bury them. That's what we've been doing since August. Is Islam there? Yes. The IR, the IRF, the Islamic Relief Fund, is in Lombok. They drive trucks through destroyed villages and throw stuff out the window and just keep going. Literally. What's the difference? You stayed. You stayed in the middle of all that horror. You saw the white thing that looks like a tent. Those are the tube tents that we use because they last forever. If you had seen it longer, I'll explain it later on. It says on the side of the tent, Yasira. That is our name in a Muslim country. If we were Mission Hope, we would be thrown out immediately. Yasira means foundation for good community living. That's how we get to do ministry under the Muslim thumb. But you stayed, and so far, over 1,500 families have been served by our organization. This is a long-time deal. We need to help them rebuild their homes as well as everything else. It cost me $70 a family to provide food and water for a month, shelter that'll last for years, and to keep our staff on the ground caring. Like I said, we've done 1,500 families so far. You want to feel good? Write a check for 70 bucks. Give it to the church. They'll send it to us. And then sit back and go, we just took care of a family. Let me put it this way. How do you think the family feels that wrote the check, that bought the cloth, that wrapped the women and saved their lives in Congo? That ought to be a chant. How do you think they feel? Oh, my goodness. They sit back and know that those women are alive because of what they did. You can sit back and say the same thing about families in Indonesia where we are laying the groundwork to lead these folks to Jesus. This is the starting point. Be there and care and stay throughout it all. Let them see the difference in the way we love them and the way they're not loved. And then they come to us and say, why did you stay? And then we can say, because of this guy, Jesus, and that's how you get around it legally. I'll tell you more later if you want to hear about that. But there are legal ways to witness in the world of Islam. Jesus is not teasing. He says, if you're ashamed of me now, I'll be ashamed of you then. But, but, he never leaves us hanging, does he? But there's some of you sitting right here who will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God. And that's the takeaway for today. The takeaway is to take a day. Take, take one day. My day starts about 3 o'clock in the morning almost every day. And I think some of you who are older, your day probably does as well. At 3 o'clock in the morning, I either have had a bad dream about something around the world or I've got to go to the bathroom. 
Or one of my best friends who is also awake at 3 o'clock in the morning has called to tell me he's found a particularly adorable picture of kittens on the internet and he just wanted to share. (laughs) When I get back in bed, I did it this morning, I start at the cross. Always start at the cross. Say that with me. Always start at the cross. And what I do is I lay in my bed and I thank Jesus for dying on the cross for me and my family and my friends and your church and this world. And I start right there. And I have learned if the praises go up, the blessing comes down. And the blessing is I fall right back to sleep. Then when I wake up, the first thing I tell my wife is I love you and Jesus loves you too. I called Sweet Pooey as my wife. I called Sweet Pooey from the parking lot this morning. And I said, Precious, I love you and Jesus loves you too. She had the cutest thing. It was about 7 o'clock in the morning. She had the cutest response. Great. Click. <laughs> that was that. <laughs> no. But then I got my routine. And you've got one. We've all got one. I know there are three places I'm going to get stuck in traffic. At place number one, I say the Lord's Prayer right out loud so I can hear it. At place number two, I say the 23rd Psalm right out loud so I can hear it. And at place number three, I'm praying that I don't kill the guy in front of me who started all this mess. Teasing, of course. I'm just teasing. I pray for everybody that I know. And when I get to the office, I'm a lot more fun to be around than getting all wired up. Then when we go to lunch and the server says, what do you have? I'll say, well, I'm getting ready to have the blessing. What can I pray for for you? Last Sunday in Meridian, Mississippi, I prayed for... A lady at the chicken place, the manager, who's just anxious. And we prayed for peace. Before that in Charlotte, I played, prayed with Felicia that she would find an apartment she could afford. I prayed with another server whose nine-month-old Tommy was having a birthday. Prayed for a woman in Bardstown, Kentucky, whose grown daughter was struggling. It makes their day, it'll make your day. And, and, and let's just say, you say, what can I pray for for you? If they give you a funny look, Here's what you say. Oh, it's okay. A little Jesus never hurt anybody. And then you'll be amazed at what you hear. I have two wonderful friends. This is fun to say. They are Ethiopian evangelists. That just rolls off the tongue. Their names are Zemed and Aster. And Aster went to China to preach. And when she got back, I said, oh, how did it go? She had the most wonderful line. She said, oh, Ben, the Lord showed up and showed off. What a great line. Well, here's what I've learned. If we can begin to include Jesus in the everyday moments of our lives, you will find that you will move from being a a spectator to more of a participant in the kingdom of God. And you will find that Jesus will show up and show off in your life in ways you never imagined. And who knows? If we could get everybody we know to include Jesus in just the everyday moments of their lives, maybe someday the name of Jesus would be more popular than the word bacon. God bless you. You stay strong and God bless America. Let's pray together. Father, it's words. It's words that start when you ask us, who do we say that you are? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, you are our Lord and Savior. You paid the price for our sin that we might have life and have it abundantly. And this day, Father, place upon our hearts that burden of hope. Remind us that because of Jesus, we are part of the answer. We're not part of the problem. 
And for that, we give you thanks for Jesus' sake. Amen.